this bird run, which we didn't want to go back. So the commitment factor to me was sky high and we're going up. That's the only way out of this thing. All right, team, that is a little snippet from our interview with Brian Burdeau, the uh, Washington man, myth, legend, uh, illustrious, elusive, whatever you want to call it. Uh, Brian is such a pivotal part of North Cascades uh, technical rock climbing, alpine climbing, and uh, Mark Allen got this interview in 2019 at a Metal Valley Climbers event and really dove into what would be Brian's B-sides of his resume, but certainly not B-sides for any of us that want to climb these things. These are all really, really cool objectives that would be a, a high watermark on, on anyone's resume, and it's awesome that Mark dove in there, got some deep cuts, talked about cool rocks as Mark does, and I try to not sound like too much of an idiot in the thing, but you guys know me at this point, and no promises can be made there. But uh, before we dive into the interview, I do want to talk a little bit about what the Bureau's got going on coming up. Uh, winter is coming. We're all thinking about snow, and our avalanche programs are up. The Backcountry Ski Pass is for sale, and uh, please go check them out on the website, mountainbureau.com, all the social medias, and uh, thanks to everyone that have come out for Rocktober Clinics. They went really, really well, really cool programming, and if you want more information to squeak in some rock climbing before the season is over, head over to mountainbureau.com. All right, just so you know how this thing's going to work, we're going to talk a little bit about context, give some background information to the peaks. We're going to start with uh, Bear Mountain, then we're going to move into Mount Triumph, and then last on this episode, we're doing Davis Peak. We do have a whole nother episode coming up. We're going to talk Slessy, Liberty Bell, and uh, Bearing, which is going to be rad. I'm super psyched on that, but I'll shut up. I'll talk to you guys in the middle like I usually do, and uh, yeah, enjoy. I mean, if I was to express what Brian Bordeaux was to me as a young climber, how I even know about him at all is, you know, I, I was lucky enough to have him in a similar community. And he, he grew up in the Seattle area. I grew up north of Seattle. I didn't really know of him at all until I moved to the Meto Valley and started climbing it in Washington Pass and, and had um, learned of you know, his activity here, uh, through the, you know, guidebooks and climbing at fun rock. And, um, you know, I, I also needed a higher resolution of information than the Becky, the red Fred was giving me the cascade Alpine guide for the Washington pass area. And he had one of the only uh, modern guidebooks called North cascades rock that he had written. And it was, uh, you know, true to form it was already out of print i think i don't know how many he published but it was self-published i believe it was his first guidebook because it has it has like mazama in it these hand-drawn topos from uh, of fun rock and and whatnot and you know you put his a lot of his and and peter dorsch's activity in there you know the cedar creek wall and his uh routes on 
the the wine spires and um you know rapple grapple and all these kind of more modern routes that aren't in the in the becky guidebook and um so yeah that was kind of like my bible you know was trying to repeat all these brian bordeaux uh climbs and then the ones he just he explains in his topos it was super motivating for me to see the washington pass area sort of explained in this modern free climbing way where in the past you know it was only just kind of the historic archive of the sense and you have everything from you know the sierra club schlogging up in boots to um you know brian Berto's uh uh a passenger, you know, is, is, is in the book. So this was like filtered it down to things that I was interested in. And so that's kind of how I came to know Brian. And then I started seeing him around and, um, you know, he was just this, you know, a mentor of what one could achieve in the area, super inspiring. And, um, I didn't fully understand who exactly he was to the free climbing world at that point, you know, he had kind of his heyday hadn't, you know, he hadn't met his swan song or anything like that, but you know, his crescendo of his free climbing career in, in, uh, Washington kind of had happened. Um, and I didn't fully understand the extent of it until, uh, much later in my life. So now diving into it, I, I fully understand you know, how significant he was as a player in the free climbing world in Washington, not only na and nationally, I would say, in terms of what was happening in uh, the country. Um, you know, he maybe he wasn't exactly on the tip of the spear, but, you know, he was part of the tip of the spear for sure um, in that time of the yeah, 80s. Yeah, I mean... And, and relative to like, I mean, would it be a bold statement to say like first person that we at least know of, uh, notably in the Northwest that was really pushing free climbing, um, with more of like a rock climbing mentality than just a true get to the summit mentality, alpine climbing? Well, I think, um, you know, Alan Kearney and Mark Houston were probably trying to do that. Um, but you know, at, they were, weren't. It, you know, they were, I wouldn't say, you know, they had kind of a different culture at that point. Um, but, you know, they were trying to do so. I think Alan Kearney was probably uh, one of the first, and so is Peter Dorish. Peter Dorish was probably the first uh, in terms of pushing the free climbing. Um, uh, and he was sort of a couple years ahead of, of Bordeaux and, and definitely a, a mentor to Bordeaux, as he describes in the podcast. Yeah, immediately after I said that, I kind of like really realized I put my foot in my mouth really large <laughs> by, by not intentionally trying to slam on Kearney or Houston no, no, no. Or, Dor or Dorish. But yeah, I mean, I, yeah, now that you say that, I'm like, oh, yeah, yep my bad <laughs> yeah no i but i think what what you're recognizing is and and Berto talks about this in the interview is you know he was really the f result the first result of an, a pacific northwestern having access to training uh, facilities and so he uh, you know he was the direct result of the uh the UW rock um he was the and then later uh the vertical were a club which was on Elliott Avenue and 
you know, and contemporaries in, in that building, you had, you know, Greg Childs, uh, you know, Jim Danini, oh, wow. Lynn Hill would come in from time to time. That's where Scott, oh, okay. Scott Fisher was training. Um, that's where I would train when I was in high school, you know, the, oh, wow. that, uh, I would drive from Everett, you know, like 45 minutes in all sorts of conditions to go climb in the only rock climbing gym in the Pacific Northwest. So yeah, was, with the who's who of climbing at the time there. Well, yeah. And, and honestly, I, I didn't know who they were and they were just the old dudes at that time. I don't know, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I think that what we can really say that Bordeaux was, was the, was the the beginning of the new era of free climbing and and especially with having access to training facilities and modern uh spring-loaded camming devices and rock rock shoes yep and then and also to like tip the hat back as i'm like still thoroughly embarrassed about dogging on alan kearney um tipping back to them is like doing the first ascent is always a longer harder process and doing the first free ascent is totally notable but you do have a map you do have a lot of the work done in terms of where the route goes and now you can focus on the movement so there, there is a lot of you know work put in that's definitely respected from the free climbing community of the first ascent party yeah i mean that's where really the vision comes from is from the first ascent party um and a lot of the i'd say almost all of the problems have been removed from you know other than you know the physical movement which a lot of people probably think oh well that is the problem but not really i mean it's you gotta you know know that there's anchors and know that it takes gear and know how to get there and know that it goes and there's a, a lot of there's a long list of things that are uh in front of you as a barrier other than you know hard climbing yeah, I mean, it's maybe like building a house. If I were to stretch it, it's like, okay, someone found the lot, they, whatever, did the dirt work, you got the foundation, they got septic, it's stubbed in. Now it's like a lot easier to come frame it because it's like, okay, it's there. Or even if it's already framed, it's easier to come do the finish work once the groundwork has been laid. Yeah, I mean, I don't need to go uh, into a pissing match of first free ascents versus first ascents, but it, it does feel like, you know, this even the second ascent of something, um, it, so much has been plowed uh, for you that it's so much easier to come back and, and you know, speed it up or, or, you know, do it with less gear or a day faster or whatever because you have the information. Yeah, for sure. So relative to Bear, when did Kearney do that? Let's see. So that was... Yeah, so I mean, first the first ascent of the north face of Bear was uh, 1967 by Fred Becky and Mark Fielding. They took, uh, oh, wow. okay. they took two days to do it, July 14th through 15th. And, um, you know, they had bivvies and they... They did some aid climbing. I was, I was at Fred Becky's memorial at the Mountaineers Clubhouse in Seattle, and I was chatting with Mark Fielding, and he told me a really cool story about that, uh, that whole affair. And I guess it was the second or third attempt that Becky had on the feature specifically, and so he already had like a rack and food and a gear cache back there, huh. waiting. Uh, for a partner for 
an assuming partner. And so Mark just saw this as, you know, he was already a cascading openness at that time, but he really saw this as, you know, wow, this is an amazing opportunity. I get to climb this pretty obscure kind of test piece peak in the North Cascades. Not many things have been done, you know, kind of like it at the time. And so it was, you know, it was pretty hard for the, for the era. And so he was like, I got to do it. But the problem was, is that he was in the military and had to go back on duty. And so Mark <laughs> goes AWOL wow. from the military <laughs> to go attempt this, uh, peak and and they did and they they got up it and i believe um they he ended up you know i think hand drilling a bolt or putting in a i can't remember that if he hand drilled the bolt or put in a piton i think it's a bolt um to protect this off with um and he was kind of laughing he's like yeah and then i think it was either uh Skoog later or you know one of the second second ascent or second attempt parties that came back and like they just like stepped <laughs> a body length to the right and they you know found a, a crack that could take them up without the bolt so that's how most people lateral, get up it now lateral, lateral move lateral move yeah definitely yep, yep. <laughs> yeah so then alan kearney you know wouldn't come back until um or he wouldn't come and do the route um uh, later, I think he was he was on the northwest. He put up first ascent up on the northwest buttress uh, in the eighties um, with uh, his wife Sherry uh, Ed Newville and Jeff Thomas. Uh, no, nineteen seventy seven. Sorry. So so a few years. So he kind of had some experience with the peak, and then um, you know wanted to straighten out Becky's. Uh, climb with Mark Fielding and so he came back with Bobby Knight in September 11th I believe 1980 and they put the direct north face up uh, which added several new pitches up to 510 and there was some aid climbing in it as well Okay. so which kind of left this you know landscape f of you know potential free climbing you know, first free ascents to happen. Alan actually did a lot of that where in, in the Cascades where, you know, predominantly there was, uh, it was free and then it would get to these like, you know, five hard, really hard five ten or five eleven, And, you know, they had overnight packs or whatever they were dealing with his challenges and kind of would leave like a pitch or half a pitch that was aided. And, uh, um, okay. and, and so it just kind of was fodder for someone like Birdo, who's, you know, just a little bit younger, better gear, tiny bit, you know, had trained and, um, yep. he in 1985, you know, came back with Jan Morand and got the first free ascent in a single push. So they, they not only straightened out the, I wouldn't say straightened out, they repeated the Alan Kearney, Bobby Knight line, but they did it in, you know, a, a day and a half faster. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. A lot to unpack in there. So that all makes good sense. I mean, it's just a lot going on when you're climbing the new route overnight bags, but you're still climbing. I mean, Kearney and those guys were still going for free ascents in the day. So that that's all lining up a lot more. Thanks for clarifying that. 
Yeah, and the and the thing that uh, Bordeaux really specifies in that in the interview that I had with him was just uh, how in what high regard Alan Kearney and Fred Becky held the rock quality on Mount Bear. You know, oh. uh, Bobby Knight was also Alan Kearney's partner in Patagonia. Okay, and so those guys were going back and forth between Patagonia and the Cascades and Bordeaux remembers Alan sort of whispering, yeah, there are two places in the world with really exceptional rock and that's the Patagonia and Mount bear. (laughs) (laughs) They're like everything else like didn't exist, you know, Yosemite or the Sierras or whatever. (laughs) Well, that that's funny though. And, and like, having climbed in the Cascades and Patagonia a bit, not on bear, but I, I would say too, it's like, it's really, really good rock, but it's still alpine climbing. You know, it's like, yeah, your, your run of the mill rock climber would be like pretty wide eyed in either place. But yeah, I think, I think probably like the upper sections of those buttresses are pretty incredible for the mountains. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's just like any, I don't know any one of the any of the modern classics in the Cascades of alpine rock climbing. You know they all have this scrappy top and scrappy approach, and in between this nice compact section of immaculate rock. You know, so we all remember the middle part, though. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> yeah what is the, the negative experience amnesia? Like it just—it's like you completely forget about the Chas Gully that you came up for. You know, an hour and a half and almost died twice. But like getting to that you know the five pitches of perfect five nine to five ten rock climbing with thuggy hand jugs in the mountains it's like oh my god this is why do i do it why don't i do this every day that's why i bushwhacked for days to get here yeah (laughs) yeah Yeah. so i you know i think bear bear for me is uh, you know for some reason it's just kind of a, a forgotten objective like you just don't hear about the teenagers these days doing it anymore. I don't know if that's, if, if it's a function of, I can't, if I can't hear the music from my car, I've gone too far or, or what, (laughs) you know, like, but you just don't like on the, on the, on the Insta spam and face cramp, you just don't see, you, you just don't see people like, Oh, just shredded the North buttress of bear. You know, just paddled my way up it in my 16-hour ascent, car to car or whatever. No, yeah. I mean, I guess maybe I'm. I don't know if I'm connected enough anymore to be able to say, but it's. uh, It's. I feel the same way. I'm like the the deeper parts of the cascades i don't feel like you're getting hit as hard i mean we had that really cool generation of folks with blake and saul and everybody like really getting getting in there and mixing it up and then it, it seems like it's slowed down but maybe also we're just like whatever we're like uh what am i i'm, I'm an elder millennial and you're a gen xer so we're just maybe like not communicating <laughs> yeah. on the like snapchat or whatever people are using these days I know. To, my Tell social media, my social media echo, echo chamber is just old, old 43 year old climbers, I guess. And mountain yeah, guys. So, but I mean, I don't know, like looking at pictures of it, that is it the diamond head wall or whatever? That thing looks sick. Yeah. The, yeah, diamond, the diamond again, and you no, know, a, a Peter Dorish route. That was, that was a nail up. Like the dude spent days and days on that thing. Um, and you know, that's kind of the, one of the only kind of big wall missions in the cascades uh like that you know prior you know i would say after the 
uh, establishment of the East Face of Liberty Bell and whatnot. Those guys were using port ledges back then. But yeah, I mean, it was kind of one of the last big wall ascents, of, uh, uh, you know, until you get to like, you know, you fast forward like 30 years and now people are like establishing roots on the on the Norwegian buttress of Mount Index, big wall style. Totally. So. Yeah. So like, yeah. And like, yeah. So Sam and Laney are like, kind of like getting into that scene a lot. And like, I think it's, we're going to have like a renaissance with that, especially with like our renaissance and index these last few years. And I don't know. I mean, maybe just us talking about it, like it makes me want to go out there. It looks really awesome. <laughs> yeah. Until you, yeah. I mean, go read the report. It's, I mean, it was, uh, it was a really cool ascent scrappy to say the least. I think they were, uh, not any, uh, digs at them just the quality and and the vegetated nature of the of the route and you know it's it looks really cool from the highway and i think you get up there and you got to earn it first winter ascent question mark oh there you go all right we digress well, let's uh let's throw it back to the interview and jump in with brian here well, that's a perfect segue into mount bear so, Mount Bear. <laughs> Bear Mountain. Yeah, Bear Mountain, uh, located west-northwest of the Pickett's Range, just south of the Canadian border, known uh, to the Native Americans as, and I'll try not to bastardize this, but uh, Klahayu, and uh, it's 7,931 feet tall, holds the renowned North Face with 2,500 feet in relief, well known by many, many Cascadian alpine rock climbers thanks to the Jim Nelson guidebooks and uh, the Becky's Cascade Alpine Journal. On July 14th and 15th, 1967, Fred Becky and Mark Fielding uh, opened the North Buttress. Uh, the North Buttress is this uh, prominent uh, buttress we can see there in the, in the photograph. And it's an incredible feat for its time. Um, it was an obvious Cascadian high point for Becky as he reverently describes it in his Cascadian Alpine journals. Um, Mark, Field, Mark Fielding, as the story goes, went AWOL from the military to make the attempt. So it was pretty important to these two climbers uh, to tick this uh, face off in 1967. In 1980, Alan Kearney and Bobby Knight straightened out the line significantly uh, from the bottom and put up the direct north buttress, and uh, which um, five years later, uh, Brian and, and, and uh, forgive me if I mispronounce his name, it's Jan. Yen. Yen, and how do you say his last name? Moran. Yen Moran would climb the first free ascent, the direct route with an overhanging 510 pitch uh, variation, 21 pitches, uh, via overhanging cracks and in much faster time. So with the obviously not a first ascent by you, but obviously um, you were able to sort of change the culture of that climb from being a three-day uh, climb to a much faster movement and uh, between uh, 1980 and 1985. Can you tell us a little bit of, about what you remember in that ascent? So uh, Alan, at that time, when he climbed this, was traveling all over the world, climbing all over the place. And I, he's one of the first climbers I ever saw, like a slideshow. It was the UW when I was going there. And I remember 
that this dovetails with that comment I made earlier. Oh, it's all been done. Yeah, no, no, no. And uh, here's Alan, totally competent climber. He'd gone. He on the slideshow. It was it was Patagonia and Bear Mountain. And I and I was like, well, Patagonia. I'm not sure. I'm ever going there. <laughs> That's like way over my head. It's like, you know, I was like a five nine climber on track. And but he was ex more excited about this route on Bear Mountain, or as excited as anything he'd done in Patagonia, which was significant. And for the first thing, that was probably the first little light that went off for me that was like, yeah, there might be more stuff in the Cascades hiding out. Yeah, Becky, he, he, when he describes this peak, usually Becky's like, you get to the base, you cross the creek, you go up the slope, you take the left. And it's like, it's really not the obvious bush. Go to the obvious building, <laughs> traverse the yeah, go up the obvious and, But Becky's like, this is one of the best climbs I've ever done in my life. The rock is superb, the position is excellent. And so to hear Becky talk like that in the Cascade Alpine Journal. He rarely uses adjectives. Like right. That. Yeah. So anyway, so uh, Alan was like obviously impressed with this thing. And this is, like I said, it's all way over my head at that time. But, and at whatever point, um, in 1985, uh, not 1885, um, <laughs> I'm old, but, uh, <laughs> yeah, we lasso the summit. <laughs> cowboy boots and spurs, you know. <laughs> but anyway, so, uh, so it had stuck in my head that that thing was still hanging out there, because uh, Alan had done a few points of aid climbing. Aid climbing, for those of you who don't know, is when you're you've got a rope and you've got this gear most of the time as a free climber you're just trying to use your hands and feet to get up but sometimes if it gets too hard you got to stick something in the rock and stand on it or whatever to get past so and they had done that a couple times on their ascent um and then uh so that kind of left it hanging out there as a potential someone else to come and do it as a free they climb. had it they took three days they had multiple babies en route so i mean it was they were definitely questing you know, um, Becky had gone up the glacier and up the snow couloir, traversed into the midpoint of the buttress. So those guys straightened out. I think they added like 11 pitches of rock climbing. To oh yeah, yeah, it was a much different climb. Yeah. And so Yan and I had, and I had already, 85 was my big year. It was the year I just did a whole litany of just grade four, grade five, 511, five, whatever, a ton of routes. And, Yan was like I had three partners. It was like it was like a deck of cards that was loaded from on my side. So like, and he's like Andy, Greg, Greg White, and uh, Andy, Greg, and me, or Andy, Greg, and Yan were the, my go-to guys. And I would just get literally that whole summer. I was teaching at the time. I had the summer off, and I'd literally get back from one climb, get on the phone, call. I just climbed with the ants, like, hey, Andy, <laughs> you know. What are you doing? Hey, Greg, what are you doing? Yeah. Like, so it was like, we were just rotating through, and Yan was like one of the fastest climbers uh, I'd ever met. He, in his first year, year and a half of climbing, he did the nose in two days. He did Northwest Face of Half Dome in one day. And these are all pretty spectacular. So we went up here, and uh, I'm like, we're gonna just, you know, try to fire this off. We planned a bivy. Uh, it's a huge face. You got dropped down in this huge hole, 2,000 feet deep, and climbed back out of it, basically. And we, that ledge of snow that you see was our plan, Bibby. And we get up in these corners, and uh, that's where the first little bit of aid was that uh, Kearney had done. And I was just totally jazzed on it. And we were super committed, because there's a snow field at the base that's, for me, really steep. And we had our Bibby gear, and uh, we had to use rocks to chip 
footholds to get up to the rock and across this huge as rock. one does yeah, yeah. footholds with rock when, yeah in snow in, and, and running shoes right yeah, yeah. you know so and then the hop this bird run which we didn't want to go back so the commitment factor to me was sky high and we're going up that's the only way out of this thing and Yan was like this rock is not good, you know. It's, ah, this is ah, and I'm like, dude, just shut up and let me leave. <laughs> and so we didn't talk to each other like the rest of that day. <laughs> and we get to the bivy, the silent bivy of doom. <laughs> uh, it's a very cold night, so there was a little spooning, oh. and when you're spooning with an angry Frenchman. <laughs> You don't get a lot of sleep. <laughs> uh, anyway, so we topped out. Uh, the one thing I'll say that uh, the overhang that he talks about, I'm never done. It's a, like a 10C or 10 plus overhang. I get up, I look at this thing, I'm like, hmm. <laughs> Step around the corner. Beautiful 5'8 hand crack going right through that whole section. So, boom. Great. So, lateral move. Duh. FTW. Okay. <laughs> so this kind of set the stage for your summers of 1987 and 1989, uh, one of your most impressive string of ascents. So in that time, you climbed the northeast face of Davis Peak, which is a grade 4 or 510 in July of 1987. You climbed the north face of Triumph, the central rip. Yeah, Triumph north face. Here, let me, let me, dig, up, let me dig up some f fodder on that. Yeah, so the Triumph, you know, it's the North Face Central Rib is the route we're talking about. He, um, first, you know, I, I don't know how many people knew about this prior to Peter Dorsch's ascent, uh, but he went back there with Bob Crawford in 1981 and then again in 1985. They put up uh, two routes on the face. And, you know, if looking at John Skurlock's images of Mount Triumph's north face, uh, you know, to me, it's just like, wow, that is so majestic. Like, we have that on our website. We put it in a newsletter for the Mountain Bureau, and people are like, oh, my God, I need to come out there and do that. It's just one of those iconic peaks that has an incredible amount of prominence because of the glaciation around it. You know, to its east, you have the, you have the Goodell Creek Gorge that only rises up to the pickets. Right. And then, and then to the west, you basically just have the Skagit Valley. And so it's just this pyramid that sticks up by itself. It's not even really that tall, uh, but no, it's, I, but its prominence is, is wild. I mean, there's a similar phenomenon with Shuxin too. It just like juts out, stands alone and it is one of the most photographed mountains in the world because of it. And then Triumph is just a little deeper. You can't really see it from any road. I don't think. No, you can't. And even when hiking in, it's difficult to see, you know, when we were hiking in this summer to go do it and we saw some hikers on the trail, they're like, what are you guys going doing? We're like, oh, we're going to go do that peak behind that ridge that you can't see. So yeah, it's, <laughs> yeah. They're like, oh, that sounds cool. Have fun. That sounds lame. Um, but it's like, <laughs> if you could see it, if you could only see the triumph, you know, it's, yeah, it's, a, it's a big backpack. You, you know, you can just, you probably just do something else, you know, yeah. You yeah. Carry all that stuff. Yeah. So, you know, Peter definitely opened it up. Um, you know, and I, and I try to think of like, you know, you asked, you, you were like, you know, I, I like to like reminisce and think about the things that were happening back at that time. And like, what are these 
climbers, you know, what's on the radio and like, what's happening in life, you know, what's the context. And, and so I was like, kind of did this little bit of dreaming myself and started digging up like what's going on in 1981. And I was like, well, well, we're in a, we're in a cold war with Russia. There's that. Oh, whoa. So that's on your mind. Reagan's president. Uh, the North Cascades National Park is actually a national park, but none of it's wilderness and won't be designated until 1988, until Reagan actually signed it into, um, into law. Oh, so, I know that was a Reagan thing. <laughs> Crazy. Yeah. So, you know, uh, right, which is so counterintuitive to today's politics of, you know, um, the Republican Party being, you know, very interested in opening things up for industry and not courting things off for wilderness and, and trying to dismantle the EPA and, and all that kind of thing, which was also created by the Republican Party, fascinatingly enough. So it, Nixon. That's funny. So, yeah, it's it's, it's <laughs> awesome uh, to see, to kind of be retethered back to that time. You know, on the radio, you've got, uh, you know, ACDC's Back in Black just been released. Woohoo! Led, yes. Led Zeppelin sadly dismantled because their drummer died, like every r- big hair band in the 70s. And. Okay, but that's why they were sending is because they were so bummed that Led Zeppelin broke up. They, they just took that rage to the North Well, Face. or they got the Back in Black album, you know, which only came out, was hot off the press. I don't know, but it was... It, it, Pretty game-changing. I kind of feel like uh, just just what the little that I know about Peter Dorish, I feel like he's more like a Beach Boys, Grateful Dead, Jefferson Starship kind of guy. Like, that's just where, okay. just where I'm going with that. But I think... People surprise you. I love the death metal. That's always very surprising well, to people. The yelling at just well, that'd be good because Black Sabbath was still touring then. So that's there Fantastic. you go. So there's some context of like you know stamping. Uh, rigid stamp cams had basically just come out. Um, I don't know that Peter necessarily relied on those all too much because he was you know he still pounded in a bunch of pins at the time and. I think he was predominantly using that that and stoppers as protection, but and his own climbing ability. Like the dude was super bold, and as you can see by the hundreds of contributions of first ascents that he's had in the North Cascades, which we'll talk about more when we get to Davis Peak. Oh yeah, it's insane. Dorish's resume is ridiculous. Yeah, so Bordeaux and Jan Moran again, you know, teamed up. This is uh, a couple years after they were on, two years after they climbed Bear together. Um, okay. Came and wanted the, uh, I believe this was a second ascent. It was the second ascent and, and more direct ascent of the North uh, Face Central Rib of Triumph. And Bordeaux is actually surprisingly, you know, unimpressed with, with the climb. You know, for me, it's one of those things that I really wanted to hear all this lore about. And he was like, meh, yeah, kind of mungy, really vegetated. Rock quality wasn't that good. And, you know, a lot of us have the experience climbing the North Ridge of Triumph or the Northeast Ridge of Triumph. And that's, you know, you know, compared to like something like the West Ridge of, of Forbidden, is vegetated like you're you know you get up to the upper part of the ridge and you're still like slinging trees and things like that and passing you know moss and vegetated slopes but i i i think that uh it's more aesthetic than it is 
uh, a good experience. But nonetheless, like getting there, it's insane. Like they had to go over the Triumph Coal, do some rappelling, and then get onto this really broken up glacier. I don't really know the the conditions in which it is, but you know, this summer just looking over at it, I was just like, Ugh. <laughs> like, uh, how do you get on the buttress? <laughs> yes, yeah, it was weird. Huh. Wild. Well, it sounds like a rad route. I mean, at least rad, rad adventure, I guess maybe the route itself, take it or leave it. But uh, it's just cool that you got Brian to like dig up some of these like B cuts or like B sides, I should say, of, uh, of his resume. Anyway, enough of us to jib jab and let's uh, jump back into the interview. Mark's going to start talking about uh, Triumph and get right to Brian. I want to start with Triumph. Mount Triumph is an isolated horn near New Halem. It's an iconic pyramidal shaped peak that holds a stunning north face with a prominent central rib, aptly named once you first see it. Peter Dorish and Rob Crawford opened this face in 1981. In July of 1987, partnered again with Yen, uh, Bordeaux added four pitches to the central rib, climbing the rib more directly in a total of eight pitches up to 510. Uh, this was, the, was this the second ascent of the feature? Yeah. yeah. Okay. And uh, what can you tell us about that experience? So, uh, Triumph, um, this is where I can introduce this little, Mark didn't know it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Mark's on the hot seat here. So, anyone that knows me knows I love, I love stats and I love rating systems. Okay. I love, like, codifying stuff. So, as I've touched on before, a huge driving thing for me is curiosity. And curiosity is, is like something we have innate or whatever inside us. But when curiosity comes into the real world, there's a word for that. And it's a very awkward word called serendipity. <laughs> and it's where, like the, where things happen not for a reason and for a reason. It's kind of like the things that really make you kind of like, they're pleasant surprises, but they're also a little more than that. You've okay. willed them somehow. Somehow it's, yeah, there's yeah. something going on, okay? So anyway, this is the thread I chose to link all these climbs because they do kind of fall on a continuum there for me. So here is the, the new SI score <laughs> serendipity index. And I'm gonna let Mark, Mark is going to take a shot to guess which, where on the scale this particular climbs. Okay, so the serendipity scores as this. One, meh. <laughs> you go from one to three. Doesn't mean it's a bad climb, but it's like nothing is You go from one to three. One, one or two nice surprises is, is the three serendipity score. Uh, five. We don't have a four in the serendipity score. Uh, there are many nice surprises. This is obviously a spectrum in which we have indexes. Okay, six magical surprise. Eight more than a magical surprise. More, more than one. More than one. Yeah. With the lateral move. Yeah. 
<laughs> that's worth, that's the secret. <laughs> 10 is O-M-F-G. <laughs> we'll get to that. Yeah. yeah, F stands for family. <laughs> Fun rock. <laughs> yeah, there you go. So, so where do you guess trying from fit to? Oh, let's see, in the uh, serendipity score, let me see the score. <laughs> I'm gonna guess, um, I'm gonna guess six, magical surprise. Good guess, but not even close. Really? <laughs> Was that, what is it in the mid? I'm gonna be generous with a two. Oh, what? Oh. Well, it's like, okay, you go to a climb, you got a competent partner, you find the right route, you do it the right way, but you know, there's just nothing special. Like there was like there's no like moment or feature or whatever. Look at that thing. It's, Are you kidding? Me? That yeah, this picture is is the magical surprise. <laughs> <laughs> So, so definitely, <laughs> yeah, it, it, and it's almost like a reverse serendipity. It's like you go there expecting, okay, there's gonna be some crazy thing. Let's go. Let's go into the going there. Can we go into the yeah. going there part? So getting to this peak, you go up the oh, Thornton yeah, Lakes well, Trail. Part, yeah, you go up the Thornton Lakes Trail. You leave New Haven. It's like you go past Goodell Campground. You go up the Thornton Lakes Road to Thornton Lakes. It's a full day just to get on the other side of that ridge. So there's a saddle in the background there that you. It's a full day to get to there. And then you gotta cross the small glacier to the saddle that has this ridge. We actually mislabeled the descent route. It's this much more extreme patchy snow. They had multiple repels down to the glacier and then walked around the nun attack here up the broken glacier and then they fired it to the top. So slightly committed. So so, so that surprises me. It, it's a climb that yeah. just it just went smoothly. Okay. And you're a guy, so I, maybe in guiding this happens to like, you do a climb with a client and it's like, they were perfect for the route, you did a great job, the weather was perfect, nothing went wrong. Yeah. But you come away going, wow, okay, that was okay, that's cool. Whereas the, the climb you went and like, you know, the weather is crap. And All of my guiding experiences are six to 10. There you go. And that's, <laughs> More than magical experiences. Yes, exactly. Oh, exactly. And that's why I put up routes. Because yeah. when you put up routes, see, this is the thing, and, and this is the dirty secret of this whole thing, is as a guidebook writer, and even talking to you guys, what I'm doing is I'm destroying the serendipity. So if anyone else follows me and I've written about this, it's like, there's not gonna be any big surprises, yeah. right? So my job as a writer, a guidebook writer, is to make sure there's no big surprises, right? So, but when you do a first ascent, you're at the base of an unclined rock face, and we'll get some other ones later. It's like, your, your head, your, your gears are spinning, because it's like, well, we're gonna head this way, but who knows what we're gonna run into. You might have to make a viral move. We might have to make another, and then eventually find the right way. So it's just like that is the, it's, so it's a weird yin, it's a Tao kind of thing. Like you destroy something by doing it or whatever. Well, if but, that was meh, I want to talk about Davis P. Like, but meh. as far as the climb goes, we were looking for a 5.9, which we found. And because Pete had done a 510, but I was like, dude, there's gotta be an easier way. It's gonna be a classic 5.9 North Cascades. It just wasn't. It, the rock wasn't that great, pro wasn't that great. It just, you know. But the experience was awesome. It was decent. <laughs> <laughs> it was like, wait, it, put it this way it's one of the only routes I ever put up there I didn't name it. 
Hey team, we're going to talk a little bit about what the Bureau has going on this winter. Uh, notably, we've got our backcountry ski pass up for sale right now. It's pretty rad. It's a package of four days. Use them when you want to. Two different skill groups, so you get to be with people that are doing what you need to be doing. Uh, weekends are available. The date range for that is going to be January 22nd through February 27th. And we've got awesome benefits for pass holders and you can reserve your spot once you've bought the pass up to 48 hours in advance so you can fit it in with your schedule or catch that storm whatever you're looking to do um, more info about that at mountainbureau.com we also have our airy programs up uh, these sell out super quick last season was no different uh, airy one airy two private backcountry skiing guiding as well hop in there check out the website and uh, thanks again to everyone that came out for rocktober we had a killer time and we can squeeze in some last minute rock trips too so head over to mountainbureau.com you know what to do and let's uh head back to the interview uh man uh from I, I want to kick it off by asking a bunch of questions. Uh, embarrassingly, being from the Northwest and guiding up there a lot uh, throughout my career, I've never heard of it. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you've told you've told me about it. I've I've heard whispers of it before uh, this interview as like something with significant prominence and a lot of potential. And I'm like, and how have I never heard of it? Because right. I've been like my my similar like you get the the becky guides you do the google earth thing and i had a lot of time vested in trying to find cool mountains to climb in the northwest and embarrassingly absolutely missed it so maybe you can tell me why i did that yeah um let's see so uh i most people have seen this peak and they didn't know what it was called it looks very much like honestly the wall of a gorge i think that's probably why a lot of people pick uh. it but okay or uh, why a lot of people miss it but davis peak is kind of hidden in in some respects again because it's really not that tall you know it's a 7055 foot peak in the cascade so it's not even an 8000 foot peak even even close and what makes this peak so attractive to someone to climb is its east face is basically chopped off by by a glacial gorge and because it is so chopped it it actually drops 5250 feet in one horizontal mile um, oh, wow. which there's only one other peak that does that in the so it's the second um, I guess it, it's relief it, it, how do I describe this? It's um, it has the most relief of any peak in a lateral mile, second to uh, a peak called uh, uh, Kinnerly Peak in the Livingston Range in Montana, just south of the Canadian border in the Glacier National Park. And wow! So yeah, it, it's uh, for the prominence folks. It's it's basically like the north face of the Eiger, and it's totally missed by by spectators because it's tucked in um, a gorge that you can't really see and it's not the tallest peak and it's just right that you access it from Dia the town of Diablo which a lot of people would say well where's that when highway 20 goes when you hit uh, come out of the gorge at a new Halem and you hit Lake Diablo 
there's a town there called Diablo. There's a creek that comes down uh, out of the pickets called Statatl. And ah, okay. that this Davis Peak used to be called Statatl Peak. It was named uh, originally the Salish name. And it it has this, you know, basically 7,000 feet of relief in front of you from the trail because the trail starts at 480 feet. So the gorge, the, the Skagit Gorge is so low that I think that's really what people don't fully understand in the North Cascades is the, the valleys are so low and the peaks aren't necessarily that high, but has similar relief as to the Alps. So you can't see it. You can, you, if you, if you go to the Ross Lake overlook, you can actually see the face, uh, tucked, okay. tucked back in there. And then behind that, most people are distracted because you can see east and west, east and west McMillan Spire in the pickets, and so the and so people's eyes are drawn to the higher needle-shaped things, and they kind of miss this uh, face of Davis. And um, the first ascent of Davis was in 1904 by a USGS surveying crew. Um, let's see, I think their names were Ledgerwood and Rayburn. If that's, if that night, yeah, this is so classic, classic, you know, for the, for the time, you know, Ledger, Ledgerwood and Rayburn, you know, summit to Davis peak. peak. Yeah. So they were to them, it was to Tattle peak and they were coming out of, um, a, uh, Becky writes about the, a family, the Davis family that actually had a, uh, outpost, in the Skagit Valley because it was significant trading for the Native Americans and all the fur traders in the area. And so they were coming through as surveyors using this as a base camp in the Skagit Valley. And at that time, you know, Ross Lake didn't exist and and uh, Diablo Lake didn't exist and the Skagit River actually came from Canada. So it's just a river going all the way through the Ross Lake area. Um, you know, ha hadn't been dammed yet by the Ross Lake Gorge and uh, Diablo dams yet, uh, which wouldn't happen for 30 more years. But so these guys climb the South Ridge from the, you know, the outpost from the Davis's outpost. And they're like, it was a hard climb. But this is the only way, you know, and <laughs> I love that stuff, you know, where, you know, people are, it's like 1904, you know, people are like, that's the only way that's possible. Well, and then like the crazy thing is we do the same thing now. Right? I know. Oh, like, there's, like, no, <laughs> yeah. It's like, there's like no way that that's a nailing route. There's no way like anyone, you, you can't even put your hand on it. And then like in 10 years, we're going to be interviewing people <clears throat> about like the new way to climb these routes that we told them that they could never climb. So it's just so it goes. Yeah. Well, and, and that continues into the sixties and early seventies and Mesner writes about that in his book, <clears throat> the seventh grade. And which is a hilarious book to see on the bookshelf because yeah. you're like the seventh grade. What? Yeah. What, what is this? Like, are we talking about, you're, is this prep, prep school of some sort or what it was that? Yeah, no, it's, totally, it yeah. says, it says the seventh grade, the most extreme climbing. And so back then <clears throat> what he, what Mesner was basically calling everyone out in the Alps about was look, the, they had said that the sixth grade, the definition of the sixth grade was the hardest climb in the world. Hardest <clears throat> climb, hardest climbs in the world. And he's like, well, how do, that doesn't make any sense because I'm, I'm soloing those now. 
So <laughs> if I'm soloing them now, there has to be something harder. Like there ha and everything is like, that doesn't make any sense. So we're going to kind of keep redefining the entire grading scale, compressing it into the sixth grade. Every time things get harder and harder and harder, he's like, no, no, there's a seventh grade. And that's, yeah. And I mean, to, to that point, we're also going to not reevaluate it. And so old grades are going to be way harder than new grades, but yeah, continue. Yeah. Sorry. So to think, you know, had to, to be Ledgerwood and Rayburn and, and, in 1904, thinking about, you know, Brian Bordeaux and, and Andy Karens in 1987, free climbing the the face, uh, the most prominent face, I would say, uh, the one that creates this this prominence of, of five, you know, over 5,000 feet in a horizontal mile is was totally, you know, you, you couldn't have convinced them that was possible. And so it's really cool to see that juxtaposition in that time frame in, you know, what is it, uh, 83 years, basically, of time. Well, I feel like we might have talked for 83 years, so let's get back into the interview with uh, what the people want more for Brian. Here we go. Davis Peak, uh, 7,051 feet. This is actually hidden practically from view. You can barely see it from Highway 20. Um, it's just above Diablo Lake, almost a stone's throw. Uh, it's the southern part of the Pickett's Range. Uh, it was renamed, uh, it used to be called Statato Peak. Uh, but in, uh, it was named uh, by the Rayburn First Ascent Team in 1905. The Davis family, which had, uh, their early host homesteaders had a roadhouse in the town of Diablo on Highway 20 back in 1905 uh, for trappers and whatnot. Um, the Rayburn family named the peak after the family at the base. And the Rayburn said, charmingly, it was uh, the, the descent route for this peak now and, and the way that people most climb it was that there was one possible way and the, the route was hard. So a little cheeky compared to what we see today uh, um, of what Brian did in uh, 1987. So not only Davis Peak has an impressive north face, but uh, national significance is that it drops 5,250 feet in one horizontal mile, which makes it the second largest vertical drop in a horizontal mile in the lower 48, the other being uh, Kernley Peak in Glacier National Park, Montana. So in July 1987, you and Andy Carnes climbed the northeast face via 4,000 foot face attacking the chimney system directly via grade four, 510, summiting after dark. And tell us a little bit about what you remember from this climb. First of all, you did a perfect job on the red line. Well, thank you. <laughs> the other ones weren't as perfect, but that's, that's exactly what it is. So now it's your turn. Okay, in the serendipity index, um, I'm I'm gonna say I'm gonna stick with magical surprise six. Ooh, you're getting really better at this. Yeah. <laughs> seven. 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 So that is more magical surprise. It's a magical surprise with a cherry on top. Okay. All right. And it's literally on top. So uh, I'll just short this down. It's a vertical mile from the Statau River to the summit. So it's an enormous face. You're looking at the upper 2,000 feet right here. Uh, the 3,000 feet below are a 
potentially dangerous river crossing and actually coming out of it was sketchy, I would say. Um, you do, uh, you're climbing up through bushwhacking vertical cliffs with huge waterfalls going past you. You get into this, we bivvied below this pocket glacier here. Woke up in the morning, we crossed the glacier. We had to jump across a bird run from the ice to the rock like down so like coming back is another thing entirely but uh we, we actually went all along the rim of this thing to look for a place where we could safely jump and then once we got onto that phase there's a thousand feet of third class which is basically there's no pro so you just climb and here there's moss and occasional loose rock or whatever but we got to uh we had no baby gear by the way we get to the base of the main phase which is the upper half and my goal here, since I had the human fly Andy with me, was we're going to put up a 511 around on this major peak. And so we started up to the right on this face, and it looked really good. And I'm used to, we were used to granite at that point, and this is a different kind of rock. It's Skagit nice. And uh, if you ever climb in New Halem, it's that same rock. Uh, the thing about New Halem is it's, it's fun to climb on, but you pretty much have to either bolt it or no pro. And that's what I found out at that point where I'm going up on this face and a couple times I'm reaching these dead ends with no protection and I'm hanging there on moss and whatever. So finally I just bailed out and we, we were back at the bottom of that face like three hours later. Wow. It's, it's probably like two in the afternoon. Um, and we're just like, oh, and we've been avoiding this obvious chimney because every chimney in the Cascades is dripping, wet, mossy, and nasty. You don't want to ever go to a chimney. So we're like, dude, we really need to at least summit. So we went into the chimney, and that was magical surprise. <laughs> oh, and what did we do to get in the chimney? Uh, <laughs> so magical surprise. Four pitches of vertical elevator shaft, perfect rock, just perfect blaze on these magical chalk stones that are every pitch. Uh, just, and we're flying through this thing, like four or five pitches, and just, it's like five, seven, five, eight. It was like literally some of the best climb I've ever done in the mountains, period. So we, then that takes you onto uh, a ledge with a buttress, and that's where things just, bam, change gears dramatically. It's back to the, very poor protection, the rock is eh, but this time it was only 510. So I, the main highlight there is I, I placed the worst piece of protection I've ever placed in any seriousness on a lead, which is a rigid stem number two friend. And do we have Cam here? Anyway. Nope. Uh, Cam has like got uh, four lobes. So these are the parts that move. And you, you stick them into a crack, and all four of those things have to be touching to protect you. <laughs> well, unless you're on the north face of Davis Peak, you find a little hole, and you take two of those cams and stick it in sideways, which is not the way you place those things. And then you take out a, a piece of webbing and tie it off to minimize the leverage that's inevitably going to happen if you were to fall on it. So I just remember watching that kind of as I'm trying to climb up and see if it's just gonna fall out yeah. on its own. We call those uh, we call those birthday candles. Okay, yeah. <laughs> it's gonna blow out. Yeah. 
So that's called psychological protection. It just gives you something to look at. It's the Jesus piece. Yeah, the Jesus piece, yeah. So anyway, and then Andy had a similar type of lead on his part. So two five ten pitches that uh, we, we topped out literally at sunset. Fortunately, there was uh, all we had was I had a t-shirt and a windbreaker and shorts. Wasn't a breath of wind, thank God. We, but we top out. We're over a thousand feet above timberline or tree line, and we're going to spend the night. I mean, there's just we had one headlamp, and the descent is coming all the way up that shoulder, and then down climbing that face. We were not prepared for that. So we get to the summit, and there was a pile of firewood. What? The what? Yes, a pile of firewood at 7,500 feet in the picket range of the Cascade. And what it was was actually someone had built some kind of structure like, like 50 years ago. And it had crumbled and left a pile of firewood. And I'm like, Andy, do you have a lighter? He says, no, I have some matches. He had two matches left. The second one lit. And we spent the night literally spooning the fire. <laughs> and it, it almost went out a few times. And uh, on the descent, uh, that's probably the only time I've literally um, uh, hallucinated without any other <laughs> without any hacking. <laughs> but I was literally looking across the valley, and I would see a rock. And here's the thing is it would always go to a religious icon. It would be the face of Jesus, and then he'd be on the cross, and then there would, it would morph into something. It would be all this. Well, that was absolutely sick. And thank you so much to Brian for doing that interview with Mark. Uh, we have the second part of this interview coming out in our next episode. We're going to talk Slessy, Navigator Wall, Liberty Bell, bearing vanishing point and i'm gonna get super nerded out with all that i'm psyched uh, thank you so much to dj mantis and the black swedes for the music check them out on all the places uh, mountain bureau as always for supporting me and doing this podcast and head over to mountainbureau.com if you need any more information on uh, upcoming courses and all that so Jeez, we're, uh, we're doing it, folks. Third episode, on to some more. Uh, if you have any feedback, questions, comments, some people you want to see on the show, hit us up over at uh, the podcast page on mountainbureau.com, and uh, we'll see you on the next one. Cheers. Cheers.